Amen. Well, that was fantastic music team. Thank you so much for leading us this morning. Those last two songs, just wanted to make a comment about those two put together. I love how David does that, puts together the, oh, come all ye unfaithful and come all ye faithful. And some of you may have even seen that in the bulletin title and go, well, isn't that a contradiction? My answer is, of course it is. And aren't you? I think we have a sense of this in our own hearts as well, don't we? Are we faithful or are we unfaithful? Well, yes, we're faithful in the sense that we're here this morning. We're longing for the return of Christ. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate the incarnation that Jesus has come. But there's a sense in which, at times, I think you look deep inside your own heart. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, and maybe you're even surprised to find some resident sin that's still there, some desires that you thought were long gone, and they're just not long gone, and some attitudes maybe. And so I think it's important for us to put those two together and just have a a realistic understanding of who we are. And we'll actually speak more about that as we move through our sermon this morning. As we uh, move into the Christmas season here, I wanted to make mention that we, every year we do a special offering on Christmas Eve. So this year's Christmas Eve offering, we discuss this as elders and we always want to have this, or typically we have this be a missions emphasis in some direction. And what we decided to do this year is actually split the offering into a few different buckets. Um, so we are going to pray in a very specific way and our sermon will actually be on peace. Uh, Christ has come and he is the Prince of Peace. And we were thinking about that theme and thinking about places that aren't experiencing peace right now. And so what we're going to do is our Christmas offering will be divided between ministry partners in Ukraine, Israel, and also in Haiti. Um, Ukraine and Israel are war-torn places right now, as has been all over the news. Haiti might be one that's a little bit overlooked. It's not necessarily a war going on there, but there is so much turmoil and so much unrest going on in Haiti. You can look up a little bit of the headlines, um, and it's just, a, it's just a really sad situation that's going on down there um, as well. So just wanted to bring that to your attention. You can take the next week or so and be thinking about that, praying for you know, what the Lord would have you to do with that. There are some envelopes. Some of you asked sometimes, how do I designate a gift? Um, you can designate that either on the website. We accept giving that way. And then also in the uh, chair backs in front of you, there's some envelopes. You can mark it on there as well. Just wanted to give you that so that you can be prepared for next week. Luke chapter 7 this week. We've decided this Christmas season to continue on in our study of Luke. We will take a break next week and we'll be talking about this idea of peace and comfort and rest and joy that Christ brings. But this week we will continue on in Luke chapter 7. I believe I've told you the story before, but it's been a while. One of my professors in seminary was telling a story one time. He said one of his kids did this. His wife had taken the kids to the grocery store, and they're having the typical, I have a toddler in the, and a little bit older than toddler in the grocery store experience, which most of us can relate to at some time or another. They get to the checkout, and these people are geniuses at their marketing, and they're asking for everything that's on these aisles. Can I have this, Mom? Can I have that? And the mom at one point looks down and says, the way you've acted today, do you think that you deserve a special treat? Now, at home, they had been working on the Westminster Catechism. (laughs) And that word, deserve, cued something in the little child's memory. The Catechism goes like this. What doth every sin deserve? And the answer that this little child gave in the grocery store line, every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse both in this life and in the life to come. 
And I'm sure the grocery store attendant had a kick out of that. She's like, yeah, we've been working on some things at home. What do we deserve? Do we deserve God's grace? That's one of the questions that we'll wrestle through this morning as we look at this story. I think most of us would know enough about the Bible to say we don't necessarily deserve God's grace. After all, if we define grace, it would be defined something like this, a simple definition of unmerited favor. Now, by definition, being unmerited means what can you do to earn it? Well, you can't because then it would be merited favor. It would be something that you worked for. So we know this, right? We know that we don't deserve grace. But practically, do we fall into this trap sometimes? And we sort of live our lives judging within ourselves, maybe. Maybe it doesn't even come out actively. But practically, we live with this deep sense of, I'm not sure I'm getting a fair shake in life here. I'm not sure this is going the way that it should for me. We see this, I think, most when we start comparing ourselves to other people. We look around, why is this person so successful? Why do they look that way and I look this way? Why are they so smart and I'm, well, not so smart? Why are they so talented? And then there's me. Why can some people draw like Pastor Allen <laughs> and others? You don't have that tool and gift. Life isn't fair, folks. We look around sometimes, and I, I think practically we, we do things like this. Maybe even this time of year, it's drawn to really a heightened sort of way. I don't have the same Christmas experiences that others are having. Maybe our gifts don't look quite the same as everybody else's. My family doesn't look like that. My health doesn't look like that. And we can just start down this road of, you know, I don't think, I don't think life's been fair to me. And what we're saying, in effect, is that God hasn't done everything for me that he should have done. And so practically, I think we've slid into something that's beyond grace because we think somehow God deserves us a little better shake at life. And I go back to the Westminster Catechism. Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and the life that is to come. What do we deserve from God? And the answer I think that we have to come to from the Bible is we don't deserve anything from the Lord. Every day, every gift is a gift of his grace. The story that we're going to look at here is such an interesting one. It's, on the surface, it's a pretty simple story. There's a centurion, a Roman soldier. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. He has a servant. The servant is sick and dying. His master, the centurion, he reaches out through his friends, the Jewish, his Jewish friends, reaches out to Jesus, asks for help. They vouch for him, say, he's an awesome guy, you should go help him, to Jesus. Jesus starts to come to the man to visit with him, and this man, the centurion, sends word like, hey, don't trouble yourself, I'm not worthy for you to actually come here to my house, but just say the word and he can be healed. Says Jesus is amazed by his faith, and then he heals his servant. Amazing story. Pretty simple on the one hand, but I think when we really start to dig into some details, it really, really is a profound story. So let's look at it. We're going to call this an unlikely example. It's an unlikely example, namely because of the characters and the act. And Jesus is going to end this story saying, I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel. But yet, here we are. 
with this Roman centurion. Let's read the story, and then we'll look at these points as we walk through it. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you come to do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built for us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What an amazing story. Let's start out here in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings, I think it's always important to remember where we've been in the Gospel of Luke, or really when in any text of Scripture. If you're new here to the Sunrise family, we studied the Bible verse by verse. So last week we looked at the section just before this, and next week, well, next week we'll actually take a break. Typical week, we would look at the next section, next set of verses. So always, if you're binge-watching anything on Netflix over the uh, holiday, not recommending that, just if you are, there's usually a recap And if you're watching them, you know, 10 in a row, you don't need the recap because you just watched it. So let's do a little bit of a recap because it's been a week and not everybody was with us. He's been talking about the Sermon on the Plain is what it's called. He's sort of the little brother of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longer version of a very similar sermon in Matthew. And what has this Sermon on the Plain been about? It's been about a radical new type of kingdom that's being set up and established. This is a, really a subversive, bottom-up kind of kingdom. It's not an authoritarian, top-down kind of kingdom. It's a place where the blessed ones are the ones that seem like they're cursed, according to the world standards. It's a place where you don't assert yourself and your own authority, but rather you listen to others, you treat others as you would want to be treated, not in a way that you have the power and authority to treat others, but you would try to put yourself in their shoes as best you can. It's a kingdom where you're not harsh and judgmental with other people, but you consider yourself and you consider others as more important than yourself. So on the heels of this, he moves into this town called Capernaum. Capernaum. Here's where we find Jesus. Now, this town is, uh, it's a new, it's not a new place here in the gospel story. We've been here before. We see a couple of examples of this here in Capernaum. Try to highlight this for you here. Here in uh, Capernaum, we're right up here. You might remember that Jesus was, his hometown was Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but things are pretty politically hot there when Jesus is born. So his family sort of migrates up. They move to the 
town of Nazareth. After Jesus is in Nazareth, he has his coming out party as the Messiah. He proclaims to the people, I am the Messiah. In today in your hearing, this is in Luke 4. And it starts out really well. They're speaking highly of Jesus, and it ends with them trying to throw him off a cliff. Some pastors feel this way sometimes. You start out laughing, and everybody's like, yeah, that was fun. And then by the end of it, you you know, don't know if I should duck or what. Uh, that's what happens to Jesus, but at a very high level, obviously. And so he ends up sort of settling into this new hometown where he will, he will touch base a number of times in Capernaum. So if we jump over here, this is just a blow-up map. So Sea of Galilee is here. We're in northern Israel. And so we have a lot that actually happens in Capernaum. There's a number of miracles that occur here in Capernaum. There's the nobleman's son who's healed, Simon Peter's mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1, the paralytic man is healed, Jesus cast out an unclean spirit, raised Jairus' daughter, a story that we'll see later on, healed the woman with the bleeding issue in Mark chapter 5. So they've seen a lot. They've seen a lot of Jesus, this town in Capernaum. Now let's go back and note who this man was. In verse 2, he entered Capernaum. In verse 1, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. This man has a servant who's highly valued. You can read that a couple of different ways. You might read it and say, well, he values him because he's an economic asset. Roy spoke about this morning about looking at the, Paul looking at his life in light of the resurrection, in light of the gospel, and saying, what I used to count in the assets column, now I'm putting in the liabilities column. And so we could look at that and say, well, he just views this man as an asset, so therefore he doesn't want to lose in his business. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is, especially when you combine it with all the other things that are said about this man, this is a guy who actually cares for humans. He actually cares for people, and in that day and age, not everybody saw slaves, servants, as people who really had dignity. This is kind of a newer convention, human dignity. We think this is sort of a universal given, universal human rights, things like that. There's actually been quite a bit of uh, scholars over the last you know, few years that there's just a whole like, genre of these books now showing how Christianity has really shaped the way that we view human life and dignity. And there's a, there's a number of these that are out there now. So these concepts of universal human rights, it wasn't even really there. He could have just said, well, this man's expendable. I don't really need him. I, he's obviously wealthy. I'll just buy another. I'll just get another worker. I don't need him. In some respects, I think this man could be seen as an example of the type of person that Jesus has just been talking about in the Sermon on the Plain. This is an example of somebody who's in a position of authority, but he's not using that authority in order to take advantage of people, but actually using it to serve others. So I think there's a connection that's going on here. So this is the man. He has this servant who is sick. He's very sick. Matthew records the same story. Matthew describes it this way. He was lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. A little bit more graphic on what's going on. This man's very, very sick. He's in a bad spot. And the centurion, he has compassion on him. The unlikely example. Let's look at what he does with that. Verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. 
Now, the centurion, as I noted a minute ago, this is a Roman official. A centurion would have a group of soldiers, about 100 strong, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, about 100 strong, and they would be under his command. That's become, that becomes important a little bit later in the story. And it's possible in the first century world that some Jewish people could have been sort of hired, conscripted into the army for this kind of role, but most likely he's Roman. He's not Jewish. He's Gentile, and that's because of a few things that are said here. He's singled out because he is not Jewish, and he asks his friends who are noted as being Jews, and then Jesus even says, I haven't even seen this kind of faith amongst Israel. So I think that's, he's obviously showing that this man is not, in fact, Jewish. Now, for most of us, most of us here are Gentiles, and it's probably hard for many of us to understand how deep the divide was between the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century, and even in some, you know, corners of the world still today. That's a, there's just a very, very deep divide, and so Paul interacts with this a lot in quite a few of his letters. Acts interacts with this. What do we do with these Gentiles who want to follow the Jewish Messiah? And so here we have this example, our unlikely example, of this high-level Roman official who seems to be embodying the type of message that Jesus is preaching of showing care and compassion for others. It's an amazing story. So this centurion speak more of that in a moment. So he sent the elders of the Jews to ask him to come and heal his servants, his servant. So being a Roman, he obviously had these Jewish friends, and these Jewish friends thought very highly of this man. Look at what they said. They go in as sort of as, as references for him. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. Now, I always wondered, I try to, as I read the gospel accounts, you kind of imagine, what was it like to have a conversation with Jesus? I wonder how many of these requests he got on an average day. Some of you may be at your jobs, you're in higher level positions. There's a lot of people that want what you can give and want what you can offer, and they'll send, hey, I got a friend who works at, I got a friend who can do this for you. I wonder how much of that Jesus got. We have a saying, in our world today. It's not what you know, but who you know. Yeah. And so these, he grabs these friends like, hey, you guys know Jesus. I think he could help me. I, I this servant. He's dying. Can you go get Jesus for me? Can you, be, can you vouch for me? And so that's what happens. Now, his credentials continue on. He's worthy. Why is he worthy? How do we know he's worthy? Well, look at what he's done in verse 5. For he loves our nation. Again, the reason we don't think he's Jewish. The Jews are saying he loves our nation, meaning the Israelites. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. So if you've ever been to the hospital or maybe to a university campus, typically there's a, a name on its, you know, whatever hall or whatever, you know, memorial, whatever it is. And there's a lot of times there's a donor who's made a big donation and then they name the building after him. That's how we do it in our world. There's something like this going on here. This guy had been influential. He loved the Jewish people so much that he had spent considerable funds, it would seem. We're not told exactly how this works, but it says that he built it for us. 
Now that most likely, I'm sure, doesn't mean that he's actually the one who sat out there with the chisel and the rocks and put the building together. What it means is that he funded this project. So he cares enough to actually fund the project. And so, of course, the Jewish people, they're thinking, hey, can we do something for this guy? He's been really good to us. Well, let's make sure that we understand. He's talking about a synagogue, not the temple. Those are two different things. I think just, just to make sure we're all aware of that. So the synagogue, there was only one synagogue, or there was only one temple, rather. Uh, the temple was in Jerusalem, only one, couldn't build another, okay? Only one spot. But the synagogues were sort of these outposts for teaching of the Torah and God's word and for training schools, things like that. And they were all over the place in Israel. So this map shows 55 that were marked in the time of Jesus. These are the ones that we know about. I don't have any reason to dispute this map. I haven't looked up each of these individually. I haven't visited each of these, but I'll take their word for it. There are a number of these that we see in the gospel accounts, these synagogues. And so this man, he's built this place for them. And the Jews, they go sort of as his references to Jesus, saying he's been really great. He built us this synagogue. He has a great reputation amongst Jews. From time to time, I get asked to do references for different people. Maybe it's for school or maybe it's for a job application, uh, different things. And most of the time, those are, and I'm glad to be asked, I'm always glad to be asked. Have you ever gotten one of those, some of you in those types of positions where you might get asked for a reference and you're like, huh, what do I say? I, our job people are smiling. What do I say exactly about this? Because I want to be honest, because my integrity is on the line here, but I also don't want to sabotage this individual as well. What do I say exactly about this? Well, Jesus is getting a reference here from these guys, and it's glowing. It's a glowing reference. Look, this guy cared for his servant. He loves our nation. He loves our people. And even I think there's a reference back here to the, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, your good treasure comes, your treasure comes out in what you do, right? So whatever's in your heart will come out. Well, he actually loved the Jewish people to the point that he was willing to spend his money. Good fruits coming from this guy. It's all good. Well, this isn't exactly how the man perceives himself, though. And this is where things get really great and interesting. So we see the compassion he had for his servant. We see this reputation. He's an upstanding guy. Hey, Jesus, you should do this because this guy, he's pretty cool. He's given us money. He's probably preserving some, some form of maybe political buffer as the Roman occupation and the Israelite, Israelites had their own government, the Jewish people had their own government as well. Now just imagine, just imagine for a second, what if this story had a very different turn at this point? What if Jesus had said something like this? Yeah, thanks for referring him. He seems like a really good candidate for a miracle. Let me see, he cares for people, Check. He donated a lot of money. Check. And he loves the Jews. Check. He's coming, and he seems to understand something about my ability to help him with his problem. Okay, yeah, I think he's worthy of a miracle. 
and then he performs the miracle. It would be a very different story if that's what happened, wouldn't it? That's not at all what happens. Verse six, look at what this man does. So his friends go to Jesus. They have all these very nice things to say. And Jesus went with them. It's not far from the house. The centurion sent his friends, sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So as Jesus is approaching, he's not far off. The man sends out some people and says, hey, just stop him right there because I don't think I'm worthy to have Jesus come to me. We started out our sermon asking, do we deserve, what do we deserve from God? This man seems to have an understanding of that. We live in a world that's very opposite of this. We live in a world of self-centeredness, self-promotion, making much of our own abilities, our own accomplishments. This man, he doesn't seem to have any of that, at least not in what we understand and see. This is so important. God isn't looking for your accomplishments. If you're here this morning and thinking, I gotta do a little bit more so God will notice me and forgive me, you are playing the wrong game. It's the wrong game. It's like monopoly money. You can't buy righteousness with God. That's not the currency. That's not how this works. David, after his, King David, after his terrible sin with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed, as bad as it gets, really, his prayer for repentance, he says this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. Lord, if I could just make this right by doing some things, by bringing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, I would just do that. That would be fine but that's not what you want. What does God actually want? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That is the real sacrifice the Lord is looking for. So I don't know if you're here this morning trying to work your way somehow into favor with the Lord. Let me just tell you, it's not working unless you're bringing to him your brokenness and your humility. That's what the Lord looks to. Verse seven, after he tells him, don't trouble yourself, he says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Jesus, I, I just sent some people, and here's how it could work, and we see a demonstration of his faith here. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes to my, ser- and my, to my servant. Do this, and he does it. So he says, hey, uh, Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come. All you have to do is say the word, and he will be healed. This faith amazes Jesus, as we'll see in just a moment. I wanna hit pause on the story just for a second. Let's talk about the role of faith in the miracles that Jesus performs, because it's kind of interesting to look at the different ways that Jesus does miracles. There's no set pattern. Here's just a few. There's many more. Sometimes it's the faith of friends that cause a healing or miracle to happen. I'm thinking of the story like the paralytic who gets let down from the roof by his friends. Jesus sees the faith of his friends and heals the man. Or this story here. It's the faith of the centurion, not the faith of the servant necessarily. We're not told anything about that. It's the faith of his friends, Jairus' daughter, which we'll see 
a little bit later on is another example of this. Sometimes the individual demonstrates faith. We'll see this one. The woman touches Jesus in Luke chapter eight. That's a fun story too. And he says he feels the power come out of him and she's healed. It's her faith that brings this healing about. Sometimes it's to call for faith and belief. These two stories here, they both have to do with Jesus raising people from the dead. Now, just to state the obvious, the dead are not exercising any faith at this point. Why? They're dead. Right. They can't. They're done. They're in the grave. And these people that are around Jesus, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any indication that they think Jesus is about to raise them from the dead. So there's, faith is kind of absent from the event itself, but then there's a call around these events to, you should believe in Jesus. Look what he can do. And so sometimes it's a call for faith and repentance. And then you could say the John 5 story is a call for faith and repentance, but there's no obvious role of faith in the John story. This is the individual that's at the pool of Beth, uh, Bethsaida, uh, or Bethesda, and he is there at the pool, and he's trying to be healed, and Jesus comes and says, do you really want to be healed? And Jesus heals him. And then it causes a big conflict with the Pharisees. And Jesus circles back to the man and says, you need to stop sinning or something worse than your sickness is gonna happen to you. And the story kind of ends there. There's no, it's not the individual who exercises faith. It's not his friends who exercise faith. Jesus just sort of singles him out, heals him, and calls him to believe. So faith is, is such an interesting thing. There's no set pattern. So let's go back. This man gives an amazing demonstration of faith, though. Amazing. So basically, here's how it works. He says, Jesus, I know that you have authority to do whatever you want to do. You don't need to come here to me. You can do this miracle virtually, as it were. You can, those of you who work in a corporate environment, you probably have your IT people every now and then that have to get on your computer. Always freaks me out a little bit when your mouse starts moving without you and they're just doing things and you're, you're just kind of passively watching. Jesus can sort of VPN and do a miracle if he'd like. He doesn't have to be in close proximity. Sometimes he is. Next chapter, we're gonna see where and where it's very close proximity. Sometimes he's not. This man understands that. He's a centurion. He's a Roman. And this is why he's such an unlikely exam example of his faith. He knows that Jesus doesn't have to come there. He gives an illustration. And the illustration, don't get lost with this illustration. Here's the, here's the idea. He's a military man. This will connect with many of you with military background. You don't have to love your CO. But things tend to go badly if you disobey this commanding officer, right? And so this man says, I have people under me and I tell them to do this or do that. And you know what? It works. Why does it work? Not because they love me necessarily, but because I'm one under authority and I represent the Roman Empire and things are gonna go really badly if they don't. You have the same experience, our military friends here amongst us this morning. You don't necessarily have to love the person giving you orders, but that snowball rolls downhill real fast if you stop obeying the commanding officer, right? That's what Jesus, that's what he's saying is, you're under authority from God. And the elements, sickness even has to obey you. You have to do say it. He only has power to command soldiers around to go do things and carry things or whatever he wants them to do. 
you have authority from God. This is amazing faith that this man has. Just say the word and it'll happen. This long distance miracle can happen. Jesus' reaction is amazing as well. Look at verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He's amazed. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. There's only two places in the Bible where we are told that Jesus is amazed by the response that people give him. Once is because of unbelief, and the second one, our one here, is because of belief. Jesus is amazed by his response. And in essence, validation in verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus does it on the spot. We're not told how, we're not told what he said, we're not told anything else, but we are told it works. And Jesus heals the man. It's an amazing story. Really, really amazing story. It's a story of grace, a story of grace given to those who don't deserve grace. I love the contrast. This man's friends, like, yeah, he's an awesome dude. And the man himself says, yeah, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. I'm not, I'm not worthy. Some of you maybe have been in a position before where you have a friend that gives you a reference for something. And maybe you read the reference or you hear an introduction and you're like, I don't know who that guy is, but he sounds pretty awesome. It can't be me. And I think this man has a sense of that as, he's, as we're working our way through this story. I wanna offer a few reflections in the time that we have remaining. Let's try to put ourselves into the sandals of people who are the unworthy recipients of grace. Unworthy meaning not necessarily that we are inherently worse than other people, but just that we don't deserve grace. If grace is unmerited favor, then we, by definition, don't deserve it, and yet God gives grace. First, he gives grace to the Gentiles. Grace to the Gentiles. This man, as we've noted, is Roman, and I think we have little hints of this sprinkled all throughout the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is coming. Yes, he comes and he ministers to those who are of the house of Israel, but there's also these little hints here and there of the way that Jesus ministers and blesses those who are not Jewish. This is a fulfillment and, in fact, a furthering of a promise made all the way back to Abraham. I've referenced this before, but I thought it would be good just to put it on the screen so you can see it. This is the promise made to Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is embedded into other covenant promises to Abraham as well, but this is the significant part I wanted to point out for us this morning. All the families of the earth are gonna be blessed by you. That is Abraham's descendants, which we understand as a nation of Israel. There's a general sense in which this is true. We talked a little while ago about how you can draw a line between particularly the time of Christ and the followers of Christ to where we are today, the contributions that Christianity has made on things like human value, healthcare, uh, Florence Nightingale with the nursing movement, ending slavery, abortion, things like that, human trafficking, the notion of human dignity, all those things find their roots not in pagan mythology. They don't find their roots there. They find it in Christianity. Christianity. 
And so there's a real sense in which we could say that all the families of the earth have been blessed by the way that Christianity has influenced the world. So that's a general sort of way, but don't stop there. There's also a very specific sort of way in which the families of the earth, Gentiles, can be blessed as well. And that is through the knowledge of the gospel, the saving knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ who defeated death and now offers eternal life to those who repent of their sins and trust in him. We are blessed to know this gospel story and message today. So grace to the Gentiles. We didn't deserve it, but he gives it. Next, grace to the humble. Grace to the humble. As we mentioned in Psalm 51 a moment ago, God gives grace to the humble, the broken and the contrite heart. Those are the ones that the Lord looks to. James says this, Peter says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you really want to set yourself up in opposition to God? Just be proud. That's how you do it. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. This man, this centurion, he could have asserted himself. This story could have been very differently. Like, yeah, I deserve it. Come on. Like, look what I did. Do you want to know how many zeros were on that check that I wrote to build that synagogue? Should I help you understand that? Many years ago, we had someone call the church office, wasn't at this church in another place, and I didn't receive the call, and somebody was upset about something, and they said, you must not have any idea how much money I give. And I said, you're actually absolutely right. I have no idea how much money you give, and I don't want to know because I don't want that influencing anything about how we deal with, with you or shepherd you in any way. Like, that's not for me to know. And I think this man could have asserted himself in that sort of way. Like, hey, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He's humble, even about his accomplishments. And lastly, I'll spend just a moment on this. Grace in community. If we are these kinds of people, if we're a church that's made up of these kinds of people, what we would call people who don't deserve grace and mercy, how should that influence the way that we interact and treat each other and how we see ourselves in the context of a community? Colossians 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive. We bear with one another. We're held together by bonds of unity and love. Yes, there might be friction, there might be complaints, but we forgive, we move on. This is the type of community that we have. If we really understand ourselves in this way, it should produce that type of community, not a self-righteous type of community, not this judgmental, haughty type of community, but a group of people who genuinely love each other and who genuinely, like the centurion, are saying, <laughs> I'm not worthy, but the Lord is kind and gracious. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. That's it. That's, what, that's us. That's what we are. That's who we are. I came across this quote, and I'll leave you with this. As a church family, I thought this was, this was interesting and helpful. Uh, David Zoll wrote, he's speaking about the church. He says, it's a place to lay down those things, meaning our failures, to hear about second chances, 
and third chances and fourth chances. It's a place to go and not be turned away, no matter how overwhelming your limitations are, by what forms your self-centeredness has expressed itself or how much damage your doubleness has done. Even more than a place to come together, it is a place to fall apart. And there is always room for a few more faces. If you drag yourself in here this morning and you feel beat down by life, pull up a chair, make some friends, welcome to the club. We're all in this together. Make a friend and stay a while. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this example of the centurion. And by some standard, we could say he really could have asserted himself. He could have asserted his accomplishments and could have touted his own character and his accomplishments and even his financial gifts. But that's not what's highlighted for us. Lord, what's highlighted is his sincere and honest and really profound, amazing faith that he had in the Messiah to know that you, Jesus, could heal his servant even from a distance, to have a sense of his own sinfulness and a sense of your holiness and be able to understand that. Lord, we stand here now many years later looking at stories like this and we recognize that we also, so many of us, we are ones who were born outside the covenant of Israel. We are Gentiles who are the recipients today of this new covenant, this new work that you've done in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that and understand that. We're not worthy of grace, but yet you give grace freely. Lord, maybe there's some here who need to understand and come to know the gospel message, maybe for the first time, to recognize that they are sinners and that you are a great and awesome Savior. I pray that you would use your word, show them their need for Christ today. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.